0: Hello and welcome to Cloud9Fin, a podcast for investors, bankers, lawyers, advisors, analysts, CFOs, CEOs, and basically anyone interested in corporate finance or who just wants to understand in a probably unnecessary level of detail how their pension is invested. I'm your host, Will Cager smith and today I'm very excited to be sitting down with Carson Block, the famed short seller and founder of Muddy Waters Research. So welcome, Carson.
1: Thanks, Will. Good to be here.
0: So. Most people probably know you best for your work in equities, but you and your team at Muddy Waters have also been active in shorting credit. And I thought given the majority of our listeners are primarily focused on debt, perhaps it might make sense to kick off with a a kind of quick explanation of why you started shorting credit and, and why you see opportunity there.
1: Sure. Well, look, the dynamics of shorting credit can be far better in some respects than um, those of shorting equity, right? If you have a credit that's, and I'm not saying anything here that your audience is unaware of, but if you have a credit that's trading at or near par, um, assuming that it's not a convert, um, and you don't have to worry about equity appreciation, downside is capped and you get more leverage. So if there, in the past, um, I've been doing this 13 years, yeah when we see companies that are that have reasonably liquid issues um, and that are have significantly manipulated financials or are outright frauds, those are those can be wonderful um, you know, way credit can be a wonderful way to short it. Now, um, we've some we've done a little bit in the credit only space or issuers that only have public credit. Um, you know, like there there are obviously, there are obviously more frictions to trading credit um especially in high you know high yield credits uh but you know nonetheless the the incentives you know a lot a lot of times what we see with companies that have public equity is that you know they've they they try to fuel this growth narrative in order to pump up the stock price and a lot of the ways they do that are they have done it since the uh gfc especially borrowing money to invest you know especially to make acquisitions create a growth narrative but then you get this a lot of these companies then will create this problem on their balance sheet where the debt the debt load starts to become meaningful and especially if they're triple b minus so we we really enjoy looking at companies that are at that bottom rung of ig because the incentives were were once to try to create a growth narrative, then the incentives and disincentives become do whatever needs to be, you know, manipulate metrics in order to try to maintain that IG rating. And obviously when a company loses an IG rating, then eventually you're going to have a rotation of bondholders. So you're going to have bonds hitting the market, you know, being dumped basically. So these are, these are very attractive dynamics um, from the short perspective if you find the right type of issuer. So the issuer that is manipulating in a significant way, you know, not just on the margins, but manipulating the financials in a significant way.
0: That makes sense. So y- you sometimes talk about us living in a lie to me culture in the sense that investors are often or sometimes rewarded for ignoring red flags rather than investigating them further. And I think back to what the leveraged credit markets were like in the sort of pre-pandemic period when interest rates were basically at zero. And every time the market fell, it was just another sign to buy the dip and investors were rewarded for doing that. And that, the the lie to me uh, comment kind of rings true, but at the same time, credit investing is theoretically supposed to be about being pessimistic rather than optimistic. You know, it's very different from equity in that respect. And credit people are very downside focused because as you pointed out, the upside of investing in a bond or a loan, at least at the point of issuance, as opposed to buying into it when it's distressed is fairly limited. So do you think that lie to me culture exists in credit too? And if so, how does it manifest itself differently from in the equity market?
1: Sure. Well, I don't have as much day-to-day interaction with the credit market, so I'm gonna place a lower level of confidence on my answer here than I do when I'm speaking about equity investors. But just to start with equity and then move to credit, yeah, I mean, my, my observation or interpretation of events since the GFC is that, especially before, until rates started to rise, Um, the equity investors who'd been remunerated uh, well were the ones who really ignored risk and bought solely based on narrative. And I I feel like the tipping point in the equity market was 2013. I think that's when things started to get ridiculous in that regard. But um, alongside equity investors who cared about risk became like punchlines of jokes, you know, kind of ridiculed and you know, and they were called value investors, and that's so anachronistic. Um, but on the, on the credit side, yeah, uh, and obviously narratives mean less, but I think what ended up happening um, on the credit side were you had, you had the smarter money people who basically took the Chuck Prince view, which is while the music's playing, you got to get up and dance. Like, this doesn't make sense, but this is my job. So unless I'm ready to retire, you know, fuck it, I gotta, you know, go to work and buy this stuff. Um, but I think it, there was also a tremendous amount of complacency that set in among the less smart money um, credit investors, and I would single out banks in particular, um, you know, for their for their loans. And I mean, the and this is based on again for for me a relatively small sample size, but when I think about I mean, we were short um Noble Group, which was was a large Singapore listed um commodities, uh hard commodities trader. And um, I mean the the problems there with the credit were evident, and really the banks seemed to be complicit. Um, you know, and I'm thinking they're standard chartered, um, you know, in particular. But then, you know, when we in twenty the end of twenty fifteen, we publicly shorted group casino guichard, Perchon. Um a French company and it was it was funny I mean the 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 response of the credit markets and this and this would be the banks really because the banks were allowing even you know at the time we shorted that we came out on casino it was triple b minus and our view was that the only way that they were still deemed triple b minus was through massive manipulation of the financials and I think that that's since been proven to be prescient but it took a long time to play out. I mean, this company is finally collapsing after eight years, and its holding companies took uh, about four and change years to collapse um, after we published on on them, as you know, as well. And a lot of that was just because the the French banks took this extend and pretend mentality. And so, you know, when I tried to understand this, I and I do think that this dynamic is present, you know, has been present among banks and maybe even, um, you know, credit funds, it's like, look, you can extend and pretend because by the time this blows up, I and mean, when you're in a world of ultra low interest rates, you know, zero near zero real rates, there's a long runway on these failures. And so I think the way you look at it is look, it makes me, you know, it, if at this point, I don't have to realize a loss and we roll this thing or give them more credit, um, to refi. And, you know, by the time something happens, I'm probably going to be in a different chair, you know? And if I'm still in the same bank, I'm going to be in a more senior position and you know, who gives a shit. And by the way, when you look around and there's a critical mass of banks and credit investors doing this, you know, I mean, if everybody's zigging, you're going to be okay. If you zig, you know, if you zag when everybody zigs, that's when you have career risk. So, I think that that's kind of where, you know, the version of lie to me culture that you've seen on the credit side. But again, I say that with a lower degree of confidence than I do when I talk about the equities, just because day to day, we're I'm not interacting that much with the credit markets.
0: Yeah, yeah that, that makes sense. I also think actually that, that there's a point to be made here about in the credit markets, banks versus institutional investors, um, to your point earlier about banks and, and casino and in the US um last year after russia ukraine you know there was a, there was a lot of hung debt on banks balance sheets um and obviously typically they just ship that off to institutional investors they're in the as they always like to say in in the moving business not the storage business um and i wonder whether things like the the twitter term loan and and the 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 debt backing the the musk buyout might be a kind of an interesting situation in in terms of the banks actually being forced to reckon with the long-term kind of impact of of that credit risk um, compared to institutional investors?
1: I mean, poor talking Elon Musk. (laughs) I mean, a special case in every regard, right? I mean, the guy gave off numerous, I mean, innumerable red flags before uh, financing the Twitter acquisition. So, um, you know, net net do the banks end up making money on this, um, time will tell, don't <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I mean, they, you know, they look at it obviously as a comprehensive relationship with Elon Musk and his myriad businesses. So, um, yeah. Um, uh, but you know, I, I will admit to some schadenfreude when he, you know, when he stiffs them, right. you know, on the, on the Twitter financing.
0: Right. Well, Hey, at least a good portion of that debt is floating, right? So they're getting a decent return in the meantime. Um, but back to kind of the institutional investor side, um, it often feels like when the credit markets are really cranking in terms of primary issuance, there's such a rush to put money to work that people either don't have the time and or the inclination to sort of dig deeper and look for those red flags like you you were talking about. Because as you said, ultimately, you go to work every day and you sit in the seat where you're paid to, you're not paid to sit on cash, you're paid to put investors money to work. And I feel like one example of this that we see in the primary credit markets all the time in the loan and the bond markets is, um, is, is EBITDA adjustments. You know, companies often backed by private equity firms inflating their earnings by adding back all sorts of line items to EBITDA, which ultimately flatters their credit profile and makes them appear less risky than they maybe really are. And a lot of the investors we talk to complain about this all the time. And a lot of the bankers kind of know that they're really pushing the envelope with the adjustments a little bit. Um, it kind of reminds me sometimes of the, the scene in Succession where they're kind of increasing their their bid for, for Pierce over and over again. They get the banker on the phone three or four times. And he's like, yeah, I think we could stretch that, you know, just add another adjustment. Um, but anyway you're you're a bit of an expert in accounting and balance sheet manipulation, so I thought maybe we could go into a bit of a history of of EBITDA adjustments and addbacks because there's there's quite a kind of they didn't come from nowhere there was a sort of journey to them becoming so ubiquitous, so maybe you could talk a bit about where that whole phenomenon kind of started
1: sure, but right before doing that um yeah i mean the the whole that whole dynamic though with you know, you've talked about succession stretching the bit. Um, I mean, the earliest example of which I can think of, and I'm sure this is a I'm sure this goes back on Wall Street well before this, but if you ever read uh Barbarians at the Gate, mm-hmm. um, about the uh the takeover of um you know the LBO of RJR Nabisco, um I mean it was just funny because once it became competitive with KKR coming in there and Forceman Little, it's like, you know, the The banks, you know, First Boston, Wasserstein, Perella, they just keep, you know, like, you know, inflating margins saying, oh, well, you know, we'll cut costs, you know, a little bit more and then you can actually afford to raise your bid. So, yeah, nothing about that is, you know, has ever been intellectually honest when it's when it's competitive bidding process. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, egos and, and excitements get in the way and, you know, and, uh, you know, I think, um bravado actually often gets the better of you know sensible risk management right, right. um but uh but yeah i mean in terms from my memory you know where i think these adjustments and this non-gap fetish uh came about was during the late 90s um the uh FASB mandated that um companies would have to start expensing stock options and stock grants to employees and so This is during the the tech bubble, the the first tech bubble. And you know, it's just funny. I mean, the investors in that ecosystem, the long side, just hated that. They're like, no, 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 no. Like they wanted, you know, they wanted higher numbers, they wanted higher margins, they wanted to see profitability sooner. And obviously, most of these companies, a significant part of their comp was in, in the form of equity grants. So what you know, Wall Street pretty quickly just dug its heels in and said, you know, fuck you, FASB. We're just going to ignore it. We're going to add this stuff back. And so we're going to start talking about non-GAAP operating profit, non-GAAP EPS and or adjusted, um, you know, EPS. And it worked, I guess, you know, in, in a way. I mean, obviously the internet bubble imploded, but You know, once you had, once we had cheap money again and, you know, new asset bubbles inflating, um, you know, equities were obviously really post GFC, um, went back to that, that culture. And, um, you know, then that's, and that's really where the lie to me culture, you know, this is a great example of this lie to me culture where just, you know, Hey, we're, you know, company, uh, you know, issuer, what do you think? Like, how you know, what, what do you think your financials, your numbers really should have been? How should I look at that? Okay, add that expense back. Add that. Add that. Add that. Okay, that's a good number. Yeah. Okay. You you want me to value you based on that? Okay. Cool. Like, in, you know, everybody plays the game.
0: This is where community adjusted EBITDA came from with WeWork. <laughs> I say I say this from
1: a WeWork, by the way. Um. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, fortunately, that was that was a bridge too far. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was I was thinking, you know, I was thinking this might work, but um, you know, I think it was uh look, if there weren't all these other negative headlines about Adam Newman at the time, um, you know, maybe would have gotten away with community adjusted EBITDA. but um, mm-hmm. but in any event, that was a bridge too far, at least for that moment in time. But if we, you know, if rates hadn't risen, you know, I mean, maybe everybody would be publishing community adjusted EBITDA right. right now, and the market would love it. Um, you know, my my observation is that basically, when you have lower rates, you have less honesty in the markets and ultimately in society. Um, maybe this is a little bit, you know too philosophical, but I see a feedback loop between the capital markets and society, not just in terms of which companies get financing. But I think what occurs in the capital markets, you know, the lag of a few years, depending upon which segment of society you're talking about, but does influence individual behaviors to, you know, to, you know, I mean, sometimes very real extents. Um, you know, if you look at the relationship between INSIS's stock price and the number of opioid addicts in society and the number of people camped outside our office door right now, there's probably a relationship there. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, so the the lower rates are the less honesty you get in reporting and, um, you know, and in the capital markets in general is, is my view. So we're at a point here with higher rates where I think, I, I still feel like there's this transition that we're going through where, you know, people are, have been so you, there's so much muscle memory from the previous paradigm, the lie to me culture that um, there's a lot of resistance still to changing, you know, to changing this up because actually, especially on the equity side, this means people have to do more work. And that was one of the things like, you know, the people who did the best, at least and maybe this is just me telling myself, you know, all these years what I wanted to hear, but I felt like the people who were doing the best on the long side were the laziest. You know, they just show up and like listen to, you know, like listen to management speak or watch them and be like, oh, this dude's got charisma. Yeah, it's a good story. Let's buy the shit out of this. So people have to do more work in a higher rate environment. I think there's a lot of resistance to that. Um, and also we're just getting used to this concept of yeah, maybe we need to care more about risk at this point. Um, but that, frankly, you know, will start or has started with the the credit markets. Um, I think before it, you know, you get equity investors responding and saying, "Yes, I care about risk. That's important mm-hmm. to me."
0: Yeah, it's kind of like it used to be the great quarter guys, people who are sort of w- winning. And yeah, but 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 maybe it's changing.
1: <laughs> get on a call of a solar company. It is the dumbest core. Of sell side analysts everywhere, or like anywhere. <laughs> I used to think that was like the 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 analysts who followed the U.S. listed China TMT stocks. Then I encountered Japanese equity analysts, but then I encountered U.S. based solar <laughs> analysts. So they are horrible. Everything is like you know great quarter, and like you know my 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 personal you know disfavorite is Sunrun, and you know the the CEO of Sunrun, Mary Powell, gets on these calls, and I mean it's just funny. I'm a pretty informal guy. Like I'm sitting here in a t-shirt and I rarely wear a suit, uh, but she gets on these calls and she's like, Oh, right. We're just doing awesome. We're like crushing it. And and like the analysts just respond in the same way. Like you crushed it. You know, like I don't have a real question <laughs> for you other than why are you so great, man? So anyway, that's yeah, just we're, we still have this bullshit in our system. So, so right. Yeah.
0: Some way to go. But I think the, the, the point you made about the the feedback loop is kind of is kind of interesting in terms of like lower rates incentivize or, or disincentivize kind of holding people to account basically. Um, and I guess another area of the credit markets where that's played itself out um, is is uh, covenants and other investor protections in credit documentation. So a lot of the the debt that is kind of coming close to maturity now or, or might be getting slightly stressed now is stuff that was underwritten pre-pandemic maybe like pre-pandemic LPO's or or in 2021 when after the initial shock of COVID markets got super frothy again. Um, and I guess the irony is that a lot of the investors in that debt are probably wishing now that they had insisted on stronger covenants, stronger investor protections at the point that they were buying the debt because they could probably really use those covenants right now to kind of hold companies to account. And just for any listeners who might not be aware, covenants are basically protections within a, a loan or a bond agreement, sort of checks and balances that essentially enable a company's lenders to intervene if, for example, leverage goes too high or the company is running too low on liquidity, that kind of thing. Um, and Carson, I know you've had experience with some European credits like Casino and Vivion and that kind of thing. And you talked about amend and pretend and loose covenants kind of allow companies to do that. Um, and I feel like maybe the looseness of some debt agreements as a sort of hangover from the the super frothy period um is is maybe delaying the sort of reckoning that we're starting to face. So I wonder how you feel about the the tools that investors have nowadays to hold companies to account as we shift from that kind of the, the old sort of lie to me culture into a a slightly more responsible era, maybe.
1: Well the way I looked at the credit markets during this period of of time or post GFC is I mean, it's really, you know, just like any, just like an asset, right? There's a buyer's market and there's a seller's market. And this was, this was a seller's market, you know, the sellers of credit. So the buyers of credit didn't really have much, you know, much choice. Um, You know, again, like while the music's playing, you got to get up and dance. So I think everybody, you know, like probably substantially all institutional credit investors went into, you know, these, these bond issuances or, you know, with like eyes wide open and, you know, knowing that, I mean, like, look, I'm playing for another, you know, another day, another year in my job. And, you know, these chickens will come home to roost at some point. Um, obviously nobody likes to take losses, but I guess the, you know, the, uh, the consolation here is that you're not alone. <laughs> you know, so a lot of people, you know, everybody's zigged. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, if you zagged back in the day and you didn't allocate, you know, you were kind of probably looking at the the end of your career um, back then. So whereas now you can just point plausibly, I mean, it's it's true to what the market conditions were at the time. And, you know, you weren't a central banker might have known this is insane the whole time. But what are you going to do? And P.S., you were you were providing a service to your, to your investors. I mean, should pensions, you know, have gone all in on like a hundred percent equity allocations, even when, you know, real rates were, you know, were close to zero. No, they shouldn't have. I mean, you, you know, like your job exists for a reason and, you know, you didn't distort the market. So I don't, you know, as much as, as much as credit investors might be ruining, you know, what's going on. And and yeah, look, I I do think there's, uh, I, I do think there to some extent, this is calm before the storm. Like we're looking in some places right now as a firm where, you know, we think we're seeing some stresses, um, in, in certain areas of credit. And, um, again, we're not normally credit people, but just it's, you know, kind of attendant to our equity uh, research. We're seeing some, you know, some stresses there. And at this point it's gone from, you know, like amend and pretend, extend and pretend to, yeah, you know, okay. Like we're really kind of you know spinning the information here and denying that there are problems in the underlying. Um, you know, I'm I'm obviously being vague here because I'm talking about things that are in our pipeline, or you know, they might fall mm-hmm. out of pipeline, but um, I can't be you know I can't be specific um, at this point. But but yeah, well, I think we're starting to you know at least very small sample size, but that's, you know, we're, I I feel like we are starting to see signs that, um, you know, that, that there's going to be a dam, you know, somewhat breaking here in the not too distant future. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, like God willing, muddy waters is on the right side of that. So
0: we've talked about the pressure to put money to work and the difficulty of digging deeper when you're under that pressure um, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners who are in a job where they are paid to invest in credit will be sitting there thinking I agree with Carson on so much of this stuff but when primary debt markets are cranking and I have 10 deals on my plate in a given week there's just nowhere near enough time for me to do the 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 necessary due diligence to weed out the really bad credits that could you know really lose me money Um, so I thought maybe we could go through some of the the biggest red flags, like what are three or four things that investors should look out for when they're researching a new credit that can be a sign of potentially serious manipulation or fraud or, or malfeasance down the line?
1: Right. So I'm going to start by explaining something that I talk to uh, people about with equities, because there is definitely the analog in credit, but it's actually a little bit simpler in in credit, uh, ironically. But what what I often say you have to do when you're you know when you want to understand the risk of an equity or in this case uh given credit is un- understand where the you know where the management is incentivized to manipulate. So on the equity side it's more complex because some companies trade off you know, uh, revenue, some companies trade off EPS, others trade off EBITDA. So, you know, where you know, when you're thinking about from an equity perspective, where does management get the most juice from exaggeration? Now, when you get to the credit side, it's, you know, I think it's generally more simple, right? I mean, a lot of it's about manipulating, um, you know, a lot of it's about manipulating the, the appearance of leverage. So, you know, in finding ways to increase EBITDA finding ways to decrease the appearance of funded debt, reverse factoring was obviously a big part of that. Um, you know, quasi-equity instruments can be part of that. So you, you just, you have to look for, you know, funkiness on the balance sheet um, elsewhere to figure out whether they're doing, you know, whether they're doing something like that. I mean, look, what it, and it's really hard and depending on the company, and th- there are certain industries that are more uh, prone or may have an easier time of manipulating their financials. But, um, you know, what, one of the, to me one of the most chilling things that I I'd ever heard and this was some years ago I came to know um Andrew Fastow the former CFO of Enron mm-hmm. and you know he was he described this financing structure that Enron had put in place that really was responsible for massively misleading um credit and credit investors and equity investors and is legal it's not you know it's this was not something upon which you could be prosecuted but the Enron called it, um, they, they called it prepays, I believe. So they needed a pliable bank. So if you Google Enron Mahonia, M A H O N I A, you'll read about this one series of transactions, I think, with uh, Chase. But basically, what Enron did was, you know, it created the appearance of selling Nat Gas. And so that was actually booked as revenue and operating cash flow. And there was a handshake agreement. To buy it back in the future from the bank at a premium. So, in an imputed interest rate that was higher than what you pay on a conventional borrowing. And, um, you know, when when Fastow described this to me, I said, well, you know, like what? Okay, so you took what should have been a financing cash inflow and you effectively turned it into an operating um, cash inflow. You know, like, what was the magnitude of this? And he said, well, in the last full year for which we reported, which I think was 2000, we reported $4 billion in uh, CFFO. And of that, you know, dressed up financing was $4 billion. <laughs> So, like, you know, what, 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 are, what are you going you know, to do there? So I think the, you know, complexity is always, you know, complexity is always a warning. You know, Mm -hmm. does complexity seem, you know, and actually a lot of investors fail to ask this is the complexity that I'm seeing here in your corporate structure, in your capital structure, you know, or in where the various borrowings are, isn't this necessary Mm -hmm. or is this unnecessary complexity? Because unnecessary complexity is often, you know, at least in my world, there to help manipulate financials. So think about the complexity, whether it's necessary or unnecessary, then also, I mean, you know, does the company, you know, does does the company, are they transparent or do they get really sensitive when asked certain questions? So, great example was was Casino, and one of the things they were doing to manipulate their EBITDA upward, Casino had owned most of its real estate, the land and the buildings, so they were entering into these sales and leasebacks with an entity that actually, I mean, they had, you know. I, I would argue they always controlled this entity so that he right. borrowed from banks. So they were entering into these sales and leasebacks and you know, the, the entity that to which they were selling and from which they were leasing only cared about the cap rate, right? So casino could say, look, um, you know, I'll sell it to you for 10 million Euro and rent it back, you know, for 500,000 a year, I'll sell it to you for 20 million Euro and rent it back for, um, you know, for a hundred, for, for a million a year. And so they were able to juice the inflows or they were able to juice the gains on sale. So they were, consi- they were including that in operating profit. And when analysts asked the CFO um, who at that time, he was the, the son or nephew of a former president of France. So, you know, a, a very humble, very humble man. Mm-hmm. Um, when they asked him like, well, can you tell us roughly how much of operating income is uh, gains on sale? I mean, the guy's just like, that is not the purpose of today's call. That is not the reason we are having the call. Like, listen. Just answer the question. Like, if you ever hear a management react like that to a question or, you know, or in a a dismissive way, there's a problem. So, yeah, you've um, hit a nerve. Yeah. And, you know, like companies do this to equity investors all the time. I don't know to what extent they do it to, uh, credit investors, but they say, oh, trade secret, business secret, like, step back and think about it. Is there really something proprietary here? You know, or, I mean, with casino, like, how much are you booking games of sale? Like, how does, how does answering that question, you know, compromise their competitive position vis-a-vis Carrefour? for? It doesn't. The mm-hmm. only thing it does is it allows investors to see just how weak the actual, the core business is. So, yeah, you got. You really just have to test, you know, management's refusals to provide information and say, is this really, you know, like, is there really a business advantage or is this just them about, you know, about them snowing me the investor? So, you know, like a lot of it's common sense. So I'd say unnecessary complexity. Um, also, in you know, going back and understanding those incentives, disincentives, companies at the bottom rung of IG have a lot of incentive to to manipulate, especially if. You know, funding costs are critical to their business, you know, like EG, a trading, you know, a trading house. Um, And yeah, I mean, do they do they seem to be opaque and increasingly opaque? I mean, that was also one of the things with Vivian. Vivian Mm -hmm. never, you know, unlike many of its peers, Vivian never provided um, a list of all of its property holdings. It would always just provide like little examples. Um, That's that's a flag, you know, Mm -hmm. like what what does transparency cost you? Unless you're trying to screw me, the investor.
0: Well, we had an, an interesting example in the an interesting example in the the primary leverage loan market with Creative Artists Agency, which is this this big talent agency, and it's being bought by Artemis, um, uh, owned by a French billionaire whose whose name I won't attempt to pronounce. But um, the company has been owned by TPG for years, and it's passing into new ownership. And not only are they asking lenders to amend the change of control provisions in the debt so that they don't have to refinance all of the debt and they can fund the acquisition just with an add-on. As part of that amendment, they're asking for 150 days to report their next set of financials. So potentially, if they agree to the amendment, lenders might not get to see financials for a new company at the time of the Hollywood strikes and a change of ownership um, until maybe February 2024. So, you know, in terms of transparency, you know, that's that's a good example.
1: Yeah, no, no good can come from that. And that's, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but that was also, um, that was also a tell with Enron. Enron, when it announced results, it always, you know, they never published the cash flow statement. They were kind of famous for that, you know, and that's because, you know, they had all these plates spinning in the back room and, you know, weren't really sure how to, you know, how to tie things together. So it's mm-hmm. it's not a good sign if they can't or, you know, if they won't, uh, publish their, uh, their financials, um, you know, in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, they're, you know, they're, I mean, the, it's, you know, if they, if they can get away with that, you know, but also that brings up another point, which is, I mean, something that's been owned by PE for a while, like assume significant financial engineering, assume, you know, more the mortgaged future, um, you know, the longer PE has held it or the more PE hands through which it's passed, the more so that's the case. So, yeah, I mean, and um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd look at something, I mean, at least on the equity side, I'd look at something that's being passed off from, you know, PE firm after a long period of ownership as being at least slightly radioactive.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, CAA has been owned by TPG for a really long time, actually, I think, like, you know, uh, maybe pushing, pushing 10 years. Um, which is un- unusually long um, but anyway we-, we are nearly out of time um, but I have one final question for you which is if I mean you know you short equities and credit all day long but if you could short anything other than that like a person a book a movie a band a country a continent a planet whatever like what would it be and why there are no rules you just just can't choose a company
1: All right. So this is probably primarily for your American audience, but, um, (laughs) so I'm coming out of the closet this year as a Jets fan. Um, I grew up in the New York area Uh, during the Ken O'Brien years, they were okay, but it's amazing that they picked Ken O'Brien right before the Miami Dolphins picked Dan Marino. So that's very Jets. And I watched all the hard knocks episodes with Jets in training camp and I was excited. You know, they got Aaron Rodgers, who's one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Um, and it's so Jets, man. On the fourth play of the first game, Aaron Rodgers destroys his Achilles, and he's out for the whole season. But I was texting with a buddy of mine, you know, in the second half, and Jets ticket prices, you know, for single games on uh, on StubHub hadn't moved <laughs> yet. So I was <laughs> saying to him, "Man, I want to short these Jets tickets." So I am. I brought in this Jets t-shirt today um that nice. I'm gonna that I'm gonna wear for, for my podcast that I record later because I don't care, man. I, I kind of feel like as as short sellers, you know, we're we're like the Jets, you know, it's just um often cursed. Um just <laughs> you know, occasionally things go our way, but um very often <laughs> very often they don't. So I feel a kinship with the New York Jets. And that said, I would uh, I would short their tickets if they uh, still haven't moved down significantly in price um, following Aaron Rodgers' injury.
0: That is a great answer, thank you. Well, um, yeah, fascinating chat, and and great to have you on the pod.
1: Cool, thanks, Will. Enjoyed it.
0: All right, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for sticking around for this slightly longer than usual edition of cloud 9 And thanks again to Carson for sharing his insights and experience. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, tell your friends and colleagues, and you can always get in touch with us by emailing team at 9Fin.com. I said that's all we've got time for this week, but we'll actually be back again later this week with our regular US edition of the podcast. But don't forget to check in the week after that as well to hear from our team in London. So until next time, take care.